The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to Friday Night Live with me, Hafiz Shaban, this Friday evening on the 10th of January 2020. Corresponding to the 15th of Jamad al-Awwal, I believe, 1441. And as usual, we are broadcasting live uh, on Luton on 105.1 FM and nationally also across some of our sister stations, Sheffield Link FM, uh, Peterborough Salam, Derby, Nottingham and internationally and nationally you can tune in to Inspire FM on Friday Night Live on the Inspire FM app and of course via the Facebook live stream. Tune in and most importantly join today's discussion, join today's debate, want to hear your thoughts, want to hear your opinions, 01582 481822 is the number here in the studio. Or 07907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907907
the lead story. We're going to go into that in a couple of minutes. And then, of course, we're going to then be leading on to the next leading story over the last couple of days. And that's been the Iran and the US tensions, right? Tensions, attacks. We need some analysis. We need some update. We need to find out what's happening between Iran and US. I mean, my son came home uh, the other day and he was talking about hashtag World War Three. So, I mean, there's a lot of people talking about it, right? So let's get a let's get some analysis and find out what's been happening uh, and uh, you know is, is it gonna really be World War 3 because it has died down a bit hasn't it over the last couple of days uh, and then we've got a number of, number of other stories that we're gonna be covering but that's from 7 to 8 let's come on to those later for now that's the lineup for the first hour Right, so let's move on to inshallah ta'ala, our, our lead story and that's of course the, the China-Pakistan, right? China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Uh, I looked it up earlier and it's apparently called Pakistan-Chin Iqtisadi Rahidari. Oh, <laughs> there, you go. there you go, my, my Urdu man. We're going to hopefully also be speaking to Yasser Mas- Masood, who's a senior international relations analyst, right? And he's with a special focus on CPEC and, of course, the, the BRI, which is the, the Belt Road Initiative, right? And get his opinion on, and his expertise views on this, right? Now, if you're from the Pakistani background, Pakistani origin, and you've been visiting Pakistan recently, you might have heard a lot about this. You know, I'd be interested to get your views on this, right? Oh, and five, eight, whether you think it's going to benefit Pakistan, whether you think it's currently benefiting Pakistan, or whether it's going to add a huge amount of further economic debt onto Pakistan's books already. Uh, Abu Israel, let's, let's open up with you. What, what's your reading into the, the BRI and, and, and particularly the, the CPEC? Yeah, thank you very much, Hafsa. Uh, um, my view is that uh, China is an uh, emerging um, economic power. Um, we've seen that China has gone from um, uh, a nothing country in terms of uh, economic pro- prowess uh, back in the 80s to a second largest uh, economy in the world now. Um, they've surpassed the European powers like France, Germany, Britain, and uh, they're almost now uh, eyeing uh, themselves or aiming at um, at U.S. to take them um, over economically perhaps in the next probably a couple of decades. Mm. So it's it's an amazing uh, rise um, uh, of China's economic prowess. Although th- there are some who uh, also see this as China geostrategically probably maneuvering um, and probably um, eyeing uh, an expansion. I mean, we, we know the history, for example, uh, of uh, European expansion, certain colonial powers like Britain yeah. and France uh, mm. expanding in the last century or, or yeah. the century before that. Um, in second After the Second World War, as we know, um, uh, U.S. took over the role yes. from from Britain and France. Yeah. Um, but this century, it's uh, a lot of people are talking about is the century of China. Yeah. But the reality is that the if you if you uh, look a little bit deeper down under the surface, China uh, has traditionally never been an expansionist power. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're a, they're a sizable uh, nation, sizable country, but and and a huge population, obviously the largest in the world. Yeah. But they've never been uh, uh, expansionist in terms of the territorial expansion or any strategic expansion going out of their their borders. Okay. In fact, uh, the Great Wall of China mm. uh, is a symbol of them containing themselves yeah. inside yeah. rather yeah. than uh, going out. But with regards to BRI, the Belt Road Initiative, yeah. This actually gives some people an un, uh, an understanding that perhaps China is expanding. Yes. China may be expanding, but they are looking at economically. They're, China has been used as a, a world's uh, workshop 
some people mm. called it. Uh, yeah. A cheap place to go manufacture yeah. goods. Yeah. Uh, China not coming up with any original, uh, you know, ideas of, yeah. of themselves. So all the uh, leading-edge high-tech uh, work is still being carried out mainly in the U.S. and, and places like Britain and Germany. Yeah. Yeah. So, But the workshop is in China, right? The workshop is in China. I, I get that. We've got, we've got Yasser Masood Saab also uh, on, on the line from Pakistan. So let me introduce Yasser uh, Masood Saab to our listeners. Uh, and uh, Yasser Masood, earlier I was saying, is the senior international relations analyst with special focus on CPEC and BRI. Assalamu alaikum and, and welcome to Friday Night Live, Yasser Masood Saab. Thank you very much for, for joining us. I know you're joining us at a very late hour from China. Thank you very much. Uh, Yasser Saab, okay, we're, we're discussing, of course, the CPEC. Uh, and I've, I've asked the question earlier, you probably were listening to Abu Isra, who's here with me in the studios, and giving us an overview of what the BRI initiative is and what in particular the CPEC is. Uh, you know, it's, it's a massive program, a massive project, right? Uh, and, you know, it, it, Brother Abu Isra has given us an introduction. I mean, I, I'm, the question to you is, I get China's, right, or, you know, objective. I get China and its interests from this. What about Pakistan, from a Pakistani perspective? CPEC, is it making economic sense for, for Pakistan? Yes. Um, first of all, yeah, it, it definitely does. Because let me uh, give you an example that it's an economic premise all over the world especially for the developing states, mm. uh, you know, it's a recipe of success that any developing state definitely needs a huge injection of FDI. Mm. And unfortunately, Pakistan had a lot of uh, missed opportunities in the past. So why, you know, in the first place, we have attributed so many slogans to CPAC, like, for example, it is being called as the Game Changer Project. Yeah. Uh, it is being called as the linchpin of Belt and Road Initiative. It is being called the heart of Belt and Road Initiative. And these slogans are being attributed from both sides. Yes. So definitely it's not without a reason. Mm. First thing is that because of CPAC, uh, it is for the first time in the history of Pakistan that if we uh, even look back, uh, if we turn the clock back to the Cold War era and afterwards, uh, like after 9-11, yes. since Pakistan inception, Pakistan has always been remained or cornered to stay under the compulsion of geostrategic or geopolitical realities. It yes. is for the first time that Pakistan has taken a U-turn and embraced the geoeconomic realities, and that only happened because of CPAC. Mm. If we see all the Southeast Asian states or other uh, developing states, they got pro progress and prosperity because, one, they didn't, ha didn't have any security issues, uh, and second, they accepted the, um, the realities of uh, geoeconomics. Mm. And that's what happened to Pakistan. Okay. That is why uh, CPAC is being called the... Okay. Project. Uh, I, I, get, I, I, I get that, Yasser Okay, so we, it, was, it was launched, you know, back in 2013. We're in 2020 now. Uh, project costs, I, I'm seeing figures now. Initially, you know, they started in, in the 30s and 40 billions, and now we're talking about 62 plus billion USD, right? So, I, I mean, the point is, mm -hmm. I, I get the, 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 the strategic vision that you're selling me, right? But, you know, you know when I visit mm -hmm. Pakistan, I, I don't see the, the, I don't see the fruits and, and the results of that on, on the streets of Pakistan, right? I mean, are the people yes. benefiting from that? I mean, I mean that, that's my question to you. I, I get the governments and I get the yeah, corporates. No. no, that's a very pertinent question and that question has been raised, uh, you know, a number of times. Even in the think tank I'm working, this is the only, uh, you know, government think tank for CPAC. 
and it's like every day we uh, receive this call or these kind of questions from masses. Uh-huh. And yes, for a colossal economic activity or a project like CPAC, the very first question would be that what it's uh, you know what's in it for the people yes and that is actually the whole um, you know the purpose of CPAC yes let yeah. me tell you that for the people you know for any economic activity like CPAC it will definitely take uh, take its time because even if we see from 2013 to 2019 it was the early harvest phase yes and in early harvest phase it only focused on the energy sector and on the infrastructure yes now this we are already in the second phase of cpac we are going from semi industrialization towards an industrialized economy okay. we are focusing on the technology transfer so i think it will take its time Fine. and as far as the fruits are concerned let me tell you the um, official figures yes. because of cpac more than 70,000 jobs have already been created and out of that 60,000 jobs have been acquired by Pakistani people both blue blue and white collar jobs have gone to Pakistan you said 70,000 right I mean I, I, I've got a report here which said that the projection initially was 2.3 million jobs uh, between two well I guess that's a, 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 2 215 to 230 but, but, but just let's hang, 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 hang on there uh, Yas, Yas, I want to bring in Abu Isra I mean I hear what Yas is telling me right I, I tell you what my concern is. is is this another promise of a trickle down economy right which is that eventually it will trickle down uh, but you know what normally happens with trickle down economies it can take a very very long time and there's only very very few people that actually benefit from something like this I mean for example you go Pakistan I mean it's great to drive on, on the motorway but we've got fundamental problems in infrastructure of Pakistan fundamental problems of in terms of uh, you know the, the people education healthcare employment but we're building a beautiful motorway and you know go to Islamabad Pindi now and you see a lovely metro service but is that the priority real priority well, the, you hit the uh, the thing on the nail, by the way. Uh, sorry, hit the nail on the on his head. The issue here is that not China investing in a project which ultimately is for its own, pri- primarily for yeah. its own benefit. Mm. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a long corridor which uh, th- will give them access to Gwadar, a deep uh, seaport. Uh, one of the it could it could turn out to be one of the largest uh, in the world uh, mm. eventually, but it will it is primarily for the benefit of China. Yes, uh, th- there is an ancillary um, uh, benefits the, that Pakistani economy will get, but they are, to be honest, quite minute. In fact, the danger is that once China has uh, completed this corridor and the traffic starts uh, flowing to and fro between Ch- uh, Gwadar and Chinese mm. ports, mm. the um, the economic zones that they're talking about uh, building alongside, yes. oh. these zones will be flooded by Chinese companies. And unfortunately, mm. with that will come the Chinese goods flooding our markets. So the danger is that if we are not careful, uh, we will end up having China almost completely dominated dominating and eventually almost uh, there is a danger that they could decimate our whatever local economy we have left with mm. so it, it is there is a significant danger of that the, the reality is that for any economy like Pakistan or any other country's economy to 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 um, to grow it needs to be uh, it has to be local mm. it has to be indigenous okay. it has to be based on um, a, c- a certain structure so a certain ideological basis but China has taken a turnaround they were probably uh, before uh, 80s they were solid communists yeah. they've taken this turn because they've adopted an ideology and for a country like Pakistan to develop it cannot just rest and look f- uh, outside uh, to, towards other nations and uh, and look for FDI for example mm. no country has 
uh, organically grown by just looking at FDI. Mm. So the, uh, there is a uh, fundamental uh, root uh, issue here that Pakistan keeps looking at uh, other nations to come in, other co- uh, companies to come in and invest. When the, uh, the, 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 um, the policy should be that we need to structurally address this from ideological perspective, give Pakistan a sense of direction. It's a, it's a country yes. created in the name of Islam. Yes. And Islam as an ideology can propel Pakistan to yes. different heights. I, I think that, that's, the, that's the key point. Let me just summarize for our listeners and then hopefully we'll we'll come back to uh, this conversation inshallah shortly uh, listeners we are talking about a very key economic you know program in Pakistan and this is of course the the China's Belt Road initiative and of course is also known as the China Pakistan economic corridor right you've heard of the these projects in Gwadar that are going on these huge seaports you've probably heard of this uh, thousand plus kilometer long motorway which is being built between cities of Karachi Lahore it was part of this uh, CPEC program you've uh, you've probably seen the video it's a very impressive video I've actually I've actually seen it myself the Karakaram highway from Hassan Abdul to the Chinese border will be con- reconstructed and overhauled a lot of things happening and then always also we're talking about the you know the the energy requirements and the energy development within Pakistan's infrastructure projects etc etc so a lot lot in the pipeline right but the question is who's really going to benefit from that right and is this the number one priority for Pakistan or does it actually require you know more of an ideological direction and setting of priorities and getting a lot of the other functions of the state you know operational and, and in uh, you know heading in the right direction as opposed to you know just working on this huge you know multi-billion pound initiative I mean uh, some of the statistics are absolutely crazy I mean when you l- listen to it you know it's uh, you know 60 70 billion plus that's is gonna cost right uh, to, to build you know all of this opera you know this infrastructure and there have been problems already recently in Iran Khan was in China to say okay that this program needs to you know uh, resume again apparently there was a bit of a pause we'll ask Yasser Saab what happened and then also I want to ask Yasser Saab the question who's going to be paying for this Yasser Saab? because of course I know China's giving all of these massive loans to Pakistan but surely it's going to be wanting its money back sooner or later 015824818822 listeners 0779481822 if you've got an opinion on this particular subject matter get in touch please Yasser Saab straight to you Hmm. Yes, actually, um, uh, before us answering your question, uh, I also have a question that uh, actually when we talk about CPAC and uh, we try to, you know, find um, many faults and yes, obviously there could be many faults in such a, a big project like CPAC. But the matter of fact is that there was no country under the sun which was investing in Pakistan yeah. and even a country like UK developed developed countries or underdeveloping countries, they always attract foreign investment, be it uh, from the government or be it from the private parties or business community. And that's what Pakistan is uh, is aiming at. Even uh, the Prime Minister is working hard to uh, attract a lot of uh, you know foreign investment and uh, to attract the business community, be it from China or other countries. Uh, who's going to pay? Uh, let's come back to your question. Yes. Definitely Pakistan is going to pay. Mm. But the, uh, <coughs> let me uh, correct the uh, figure straight because what happens many of the times, um, many people even in Pakistan, they're not completely aware about the financial modalities of CPAC. Yes. Uh, let me give you the latest figure that up till now around 18.9 billion has been spent on about uh, 22 projects of CPAC. Okay. And 
uh, out of that only 5.9 billion with a 2% interest is the loan part mm-hmm. so and the repayment uh, will start from 2021 right. and all this uh, you know that part is going to, is stretched between 25 to 30 years so considering that amount and the eventual upshots which pakistan will be getting out of cpac this is just like a peanut nut but as a matter of fact, we do understand that there is a hybrid warfare against uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. There is a media warfare in which, you know, even the positive projects like CPAC uh, and other projects are being criticized. And cynics, uh, uh, you know, all over the world, they, mm. they call it a death trap diplomacy and things like that. Yes. But in case of CPAC, it's a completely different story. Right. But, but Yasasab, you know, the question that I have for you, right, I, I, I hear your point. I mean, it sounds brilliant on theory. It sounds very, very good, too. But my, my, my question is, you know, genuinely uh, from, you know, the grassroots. So grassroots is that every, you know, a different premier comes and he wants to make sure that he's remembered for a metro or remembered for a road or remembered for this project or that project. It seems that that's going to be my, you know, memory, that that's what I've done as, as a government. But overall, as a nation, are we also moving forward or not? And I think that was the question, right? That are we also moving forward as, as, as a nation? And then also, you know, another point that I want you to uh, possibly, you know, comment on is obviously the overseeing of this program too. I mean, is it being overseen by the military? Is it over, being overseen? Because they, they're in pretty much have every position in, in, in government at the moment, right? Uh, you know, and, and where, where's That's the transparency right. and accountability for this program with, with this huge amount of, uh, you know, of, of money that that's been that's coming in from from China being spent. Where where where's the transparency, accountability uh, of, of, of all of that? How are we ensuring that? Well, this is something that we are responsible for. It. Chinese are not responsible Correct. for our transparency. Yes. They have done their bit, and yes. their bit was to invest in Pakistan, which they did. Yes. Now, as far as the uh, legitimate answers are, questions are concerned, like this one, uh, for example, like transparency. And how, what would be the modalities, how Pakistan is going to pay. But as I mentioned that China has offered quite lenient, uh, you know, terms and terms. conditions for the okay. repayment. Okay. Another, another v- very quickly, Yasser Sab, we only have about three minutes left. Here. Yes. Okay. Yeah, just a, just a, a, a quick comment is, yes. for example, like we only talk about the debt part. Yes. We don't talk about the benefits which will uh, come from CPAC. Very For example, good. like Pakistan's transportation network, yes. currently it's in a bad shape, which is causing an annual loss about, uh, of about 3 to 5% yes. of GDP yes. because of uh, consumption of gas and lubricant yes. and frequent change of spare parts. Um, according to IMF, Pakistan's GDP was about 304.95 billion in 2017, yes. which means it loses about 10.6 billion because of its poor transportation network. Right. CPAC will help reduce this loss yes. because it is expected to help improve Pakistan's transportation network. Fair enough. And by building the Gawadar port and road yes. network, the CPAC will help Pakistan earn $6 billion to $8 billion a year from road and bridge. Tour. Okay, yes. So I just, actually, I, we are not talking about the benefits. F- f- fine. I just, I just want to get a last comment from, from uh, Abu Isra, who's in the studio, before we have to bring this subject matter to a close. I mean, Yasser Saab oh. mentions uh, two good points. Firstly is the case of, okay, we're not talking about, you know, a lot of the benefits that this is going to bring. And then also, no one was prepared as a foreign, you know, foreign country to de- invest and, and develop in, in Pakistan, right? And this was this opportunity. So, you know, 
pretty much Pakistan had to take that. Well, I mean, I just wanted to qu- quickly correct some figures here. I mean, the Pakistan will be paying $40 billion dollars back to China for 26.5 billion that they're getting or borrowing or some some kind of locked in investments so for, uh, tw- for 26 they're paying back 40, 40 billion yes mm. so so that's that's one thing the second thing as I previously mentioned this if we want to get, get Pakistan back to uh, well it, where, it, where it should be in the global community yes. of uh, of nations as an as an Islamic um, uh, 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 country or Islamic state or Islamic mm. nation mm. It will have to uh, do something with its own, uh, uh, correct its structural issues with its own economy. Mm. This thing that the uh, country will come from outside and do some uh, foreign direct or indirect type of investments, and this will somehow help Pakistan. We need to understand that there are countries out there, the nation states out there, they're out there for their own benefits. And they will do any project for their own benefit, for the sake of their own uh, interest, not for the interest of Pakistan. Mm. For Pakistan to take its its position in the global uh, nations or the global countries, it needs to look towards back towards Islam, yeah. fundamentally restructure the economy based on Islamic model, and inshallah that will bring the real prosperity the people of Pakistan are looking for, not not relying on powers like US to come in or Britain to come in or China to come in. Right. I mean, you know, that is not the way forward, inshallah. Okay, gents, uh, thank you very much. Yasser, Saab, uh, Yasser Masood Saab joining us from China at a very late hour. Thank you very much for your expertise and your opinions this evening. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, gents, My pleasure, sir. We, thank you very much. Unfortunately, we, we've uh, run out of time for that first story. It was very, very interesting. Uh, listeners, we were discussing the CPEC, the, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Uh, if you still have questions about it, you know, feel free to reach out. Uh, and we've still got Abu Isra for another half an hour in the studio, and I'm sure you'll be able to answer those questions. Uh, we've also had Brother Zafar walk into the studio. Mashallah, Salaamu Brother Zafar, how are you? Good, good to see you, inshallah. We're going to need you for the next half an hour, Akhi. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to be going into a commercial break. When we come back, it's all about Iran and US, right? So I'm, I'm hoping that we've got enough tension in the studio to discuss this topic too, because there's a lot of tension out there. Uh, we're going to be back in a couple of minutes until then assalamu alaikum Assalamu alaikum. This is Atif Nawaz. Listen to Inspire FM shows in your time by heading over to inspirefm.org or listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Welcome back to Friday Night Live with me, Hafiz Shaban and Brother Zafar here in the studio. Uh, we've also still got in the studio with us for the next half an hour, Brother Abu Isra, who's joined us from Birmingham. Great to have uh, Abu Isra here in the studio too, mashallah. Uh, Alright, so we're going to move on from the Pakistan-China conversation and the CPEC conversation. On to the next discussion, right? Another leading story, and there's obviously been a lot of uh, tension up in the air outside between Iran and US. Uh, so we're going to be discussing what's been happening between Iran and the US, the attacks, uh, the counter-attacks, what's the analysis, what's the update, you know, who's calling who's bluff, right? And who's uh, shadow boxing and just calling out these uh, uh, calling out these bluffs in essence. And what what's underpinning it all, right? I, I want to get to what's underpinning it all. What, what's the, the real political drive behind all of this uh, all, all of this tension so we, we're going to have a, a number of guests that are going to be you know joining as experts on on this particular subject matter if you've got a question let me know because my as I said earlier my son came home a couple of days ago and he said what's all this hashtag World 
War Three about, right? So people are asking that question, right? Is this about to be a World War Three, right? Oh one five eight two four eight one eight double two is the number in the here in the studio. I want to hear some of your calls. Hopefully in the next half an hour. Zero triple seven nine, right? Zero triple seven nine four eight one eight double two for your social media SMS, WhatsApp messages. Send me an SMS message. Send me a WhatsApp message, and I'll try to to get that to our panelists, right? Inshallah. All right, let's go straight into it. Uh, all right, so the Iran-U.S. attacks, right? So we covered that very, very briefly, brothers, after last week, right? So we've had the targeted assassination of General Qasim Soleimani, right? Arguably, as people were saying, the second most powerful man in Iran. Hashtag World War Three is trending worldwide. People are asking this question. Iran also conducted its first direct military strike on the U.S., right? Uh, since apparently since World War Two, and did so without any response from U.S. And then, of course we've seen the November 2011 Donald Trump video itself right, where he's talking about you know uh, uh, he's talking about uh, Obama attacking you know uh, Iran because he's got nothing better to do he's failed that negotiation and that's what he's going to do and he's going to do it because of the you know wanting to be re-elected and you know fast forward nine years on it's actually uh, Trump that's doing that and it's not Obama or, any, or anyone else that he was accusing back then and it's a hilarious video if you haven't seen it you've got to watch that all right, so so that that that's where we are. My first question is, and, and we've also got okay, great. We've got a Scott Professor Scott Lucas on 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 the call too. Uh, let me let me welcome you, uh, uh, Professor Scott Lucas. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, and welcome to Friday Night Live. Yes, hi, good evening. Hi, good evening. Great, great to have you tonight with us on Friday Night Live. I, I don't know if you caught the last couple of minutes introduction that I just just gave. I didn't, so okay. uh, I, I'll try to pick up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the introduction was what you already know in terms of the existing tensions between Iran and the US. And then we've had the, the attack, of course, the, the assassination of the general. And then we've had a counterattack. And then we've had a, a bit of a, a war, you know, a, you know, a, you know, war of words between the, between the two nations. Tensions are, no doubt, you know, at quite significant levels, right? We've seen the, the, the American ships, you know, all arrive into the Gulf. We've seen, you know, a number of vessel, commercial vessels in the UAE's territory, you know, being sabotaged. We've had a number of different comments. The first question to you, Professor Scott, is, you know, help our listeners understand what's driving this tension between the two. Well, your listeners will probably know that ever since the Islamic Revolution 1979, relations between at least the U.S. government and the Iranian government have been tense, to say the least. These are different systems. They both have interest in the Middle East and in the Persian Gulf. And there's never really been a period where the two sides have sort of set aside their differences to sort of say, look, how can we get along, except possibly just after the nuclear agreement in 2015 under the Obama administration. What's happened recently is... You still have a supreme leader who heads up an Iranian system who's very anti-American, very suspicious of the Americans. You have a lot of internal tensions in Iran. You've had a lot of economic difficulties. It's a very changing population. Mm -hmm. Many people want to reform the system. And to be honest with you, they have been repressed, especially since the 2009 presidential election, which many consider to be fraudulent. But on the other side, you have a current administration, the Trump administration, which has not only ripped up the 2015 nuclear deal, which sort of gave us the space possibly 
to find a way to, to work with each other. But you have officials in that administration who, frankly, want regime change, right. not to reform Iran. They want to get rid of the supreme leader hmm. and the religious leadership. And that has led not only to the withdrawal from the nuclear deal, but it's led to these comprehensive sanctions to try to break the Iranian economy. Yeah. And so, so, as you mentioned, we had these skirmishes through the spring and the summer yeah, yeah. where there were attacks on shipping. Hmm. Um, there was a threat to tankers going through the Strait of Hormuz, through which 20% of the world's oil goes. Yeah. We got through that. Uh, at the last minute, Donald Trump uh, pulled back from U.S. airstrikes inside Iran. Yeah. But, of course, what happened last week, which your listeners will know, is, is that the Americans effectively crossed a red line when they assassinated an official of another state. Yeah. Mm. And General Soleimani was not just, you know, one of the most important military commanders yeah. in Iran. He was one of their most important political figures because he was the person who, whether he was propping up the Assad regime in Syria or whether he was trying to extend Iranian influence in Iraq mm. or trying to negotiate or maneuver through the Yemeni civil war, he was, you know, he was... We would call him a Wheeler dealer in the States. He yes. was very, very good at it. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Americans, specifically, not Donald Trump, interestingly, interestingly enough, but the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and the Vice President Mike Pence decided last week they would take him out. So, Professor Scott, what, what do you think led to that particular decision? What were the key, I mean, the tensions, as you say, have, have been there for a long time. I mean, interestingly enough, on, 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 the, on the surface of it, many people would think the US and the Iran, you know, historical foes, as, as you're identifying, right? But they've had a lot of grounds of cooperation behind, the, behind you know, the closed doors, right? So, you know, Iraq is a classical example, Syria is a classical example right where there's been a lot of you know you know interests you know for, for, for both sides and, and they've actually cooperated in a lot of areas right and Iran's been a, a very you know helpful f facilitator for you know ending a lot of those Sunni insurgencies in those in, in those geographies so so what's the the real driver for then taking out this individual what happened is and again your listeners may know this but in recent months we've had protests in Iraq yeah now these have been protests against the government over discrimination over corruption over mm. failure to deliver public services yeah but but the protests have also begun to become both challenging both America we really don't want you here and also challenging Iran we don't mm. want you dominating our government and because of that Iran and the US sort of started to increase you know their friction with each other because they got a bit worried what was happening mm. and on December 27th a pro-Iranian Iraqi militia Kataib Hezbollah uh, killed uh, they fired on an Iraqi base. They killed an American contractor, yes. and they wounded four American troops, as yeah. well as Iran Iraqi personnel. Right. And that became the right. reason why the Americans then attacked these right. militia bases. There right, were five right. of them in Iraq and Syria. Okay. They killed 25 fighters, wounded more than 50. In response, supporters of Kataib Hezbollah charged the U.S. Embassy complex. They yeah. broke windows. They set fires. Yes, yes, yes. And that yes. became the pretext for Pompeo and yes. uh, to go to Donald Trump and say, you don't want this to be like another Benghazi, yes. which was where the American consulate in Libya was attacked in 2012, yeah. and four Americans, including the ambassador, were killed. Mm. And that bumped Trump. Right into approving the assassination. Okay. So it's the combination of a local case. Fine. 
this Fine. very special case of Iraq yeah. with this ongoing U.S.-Iran hostility right. overlaid, quite frankly, with the current American officials who want regime change in Iraq. Right. Okay, e excellent. I, I just want you to hold on to that thought, Professor Scott, because I want to come back to you. But we, we've got Mohammed Atif, uh, Washington-based journalist from the U.S. joiners. Uh, Mohammed Atif, thank you very much for joining us once again on Friday Night Live. Right, I want to go straight to you with my opening question, and that is, is this Trump's kind of a... Uh, a gesture for his re-election ambitions? Um, it's hard to say. It, it was a foreign policy um, step that he had to take. Um, I mean, there was... I mean, I'm surprised you say it's hard to say because he, he was ridiculing his predecessor and accusing his predecessor that he's going to be doing exactly the same thing not too long ago. Um, well, you see, whenever there's election season, there are a lot of foreign policy issues that are in debate and, you know, all candidates have to say something about it. So I would not like to comment on that, whether this is going to help him uh, mm. in any way in 2020, Al although some media, um, you know, across the globe and in the United States are saying that this might help him. Mm. But we're not discussing that. We're discussing the reason, mm. right? This could be one of the reasons, okay. according to some uh, analysis. Uh, but the, the reason was consistent behavior of Iranian regime towards the neighboring countries and towards the United States. I mean, we have to look, uh, we have to, you know, uh, see through a holistic approach. Um, there were attacks. Um, Iran is, um, you know, fueling a civil war um, in a country which has uh, a border with uh, the Saudi Arab and Saudis are fighting in Yemen. Yes. Um, Iran is supporting uh, militancy in the region, um, okay. and uh, most of it is Shia militancy. But but a lot of a lot uh, of the times Iran it's with the blessings of America, is it not, Mohammed Atif? Well, I'm not. I'm no one to uh, uh, you know uh, say anything on that because I don't think that's happening. Hmm. Uh, Iran was very effective in fighting ISIS in Iraq. There is no doubt about it. Mm. And at some point, there are reports that the U.S. and Iran were cooperating in fighting ISIS. Correct. That's mm. a fact. It yeah. cannot be denied. Yeah. But then again, there are other things. You know, there were attacks on Saudi oil tankers. There was yes. uh, capturing of the United, uh, U.K. Uh, yeah. um, uh, uh, ship. Yes. And then there are a lot of other things, the killing fine, of fine. US contractors. So, 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 so you just think it's a natural conclusion of all of these, you know, uh, you know, events that have been happening for the last, you know, good few months, if not, uh, if not year plus. So we can say that, you know, mm. probably the US crossed that threshold. Okay. They had to give them a message. Okay. All right. So that's interesting. I, I look at it in, in that way. Okay. Fine. fine. Uh, I want to come to Abu Israel in a minute. Right. So I want you to, and Brother Zafar, to get your thoughts on this subject matter. I, I want to get the, not to say you guys are not experts, but I want to get the experts' thoughts first. I want to go back to Professor Scott Lucas because I, I want to throw in something interesting. Right. So I, I've been reading an article. I've got a, an extract from it for here uh, where it cites, you know, first reason for tensions world oil prices and oil markets. Now, you must have seen, well, at least those of us that are in the US, UK, I think you are too in Birmingham, the price of petrol obviously has gone up, right? Uh, and so that was one of the one of the reasons that, you know, this has been pointed out here. Uh, and the second reason is, is someone is giving is the signing of a new nuclear agreement with Iran uh, that would guarantee lion's share to American firms in the Iranian market. That's an interesting one. There's a third one too, but I'm going to come on to that later. Well, what are your thoughts on that, uh, Professor Scott? 
Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of people who will try to reach for all these explanations, and we know that oil is important, and we know that Trump's election might be important, but I think you go back to what we know, and that is it wasn't Donald Trump who sanctioned or even drove the idea of assassinating General Soleimani. It was Secretary of State Pompeo, Pompeo, it was Vice President Pence, and they basically were working with the Pentagon to carry this out. Trump, in fact, was trying to get face-to-face talks with the Iranians, sort of like a photo opportunity, as he's done with North Korea. So that sort of knocks the re-election thesis out of the way. In terms of oil, now, I mean, the Americans at this point uh, still take some of their oil from the Middle East, but there's no scheme for the Americans to take over oil in Iran or take over Iranian oil fields. there's not even really as much a scheme for the Americans to take over Iraqi oil fields. The big issue in Iraq is mainly competition or tension between the Iraqi central government mm. and the Iraqi Kurdish regional government mm. over the oil sales. I, I want to come back just to the general picture, which, which Mohammed said, and that is I think there, is, there are two problems with what he says, which is, well, you know, General Soleimani was a really, really bad guy. Yeah. And he, he just had to be taken out, which is Mike mm. Pompeo's excuse. Yeah. The first is just a general principle, and that is General Soleimani is responsible for the deaths of many, many people supporting the Assad regime in Syria, yeah. uh, targeting Americans or using militias to target Americans in Iraq. But when you attack the official of a state and you assassinate him, you have crossed a red line that breaks all the rules. So the Iranians will say now, if they want to go after an American general, mm. well, you did it to ours, why can't we do it to you? Yeah. If the Israelis want to take out an official of the state and assassinate them publicly, they'll say, well, the Americans did it. Right. So that's the first thing. That's a very serious yeah. red line which has been crossed. Mm. And secondly, is really probably the idea that the Americans themselves have killed civilians, and you could make cases why American military have killed civilians in Yemen, have yes. killed them in Afghanistan, have killed them in Iraq. Yeah. So should they be targets for what has happened? Yeah. yeah. And thirdly, it's just the practical question. It's easy to say, let's kill the bad guy. Mm. Let's take him out like a Hollywood movie. Mm. What's difficult is what happens next. Right. And what has been very clear is the it, Trump it, administration yeah. was not prepared for the Iranian response. Yeah. For example, encouraging the Iraqi oh. parliament to expel U.S. troops. Yeah. So if you are going to carry out an act like this, like killing General Soleimani, you need to be able to react and be effective rather than mm. being confused and chaotic, as the Trump administration has been over the past week. Fantastic. Professor Scott, thank you very much for, for that. I mean, that actually that nicely brings me on to the, the, the next question, which was going to be around the U.S. policy in the region uh, and also the Iranian aspirations within the region, right? But I, I want to, you know, I've got two lovely gentlemen sitting in the studio and listening to the experts on the, on, on the phone. And I want to bring in Abu Isra. And, you know, you've been listening, uh, you know, for the last 15, 20 minutes almost, uh, Abu Isra. What, what, what are your thoughts on, on the tensions between Iran and and U.S. and what's your reading? Okay, my uh, my reading is, uh, and uh, the, uh, I want to put a context to this whole discussion. Yeah. Basically, uh, the context is that this region of Middle East, in fact, the whole of these uh, Islamic lands. Yeah. In 1924, we had an Ottoman Empire, which was dismembered by the two co- colonial powers of the last century, Britain and, and France. Yeah. And, and 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 a century before that, we had an Indian uh, subcontinent Muslim uh, Empire, which was again taken over by. Uh, uh, Britain as a colonial power. 
Uh, so the Muslims uh, of the of the of this uh, region and wider regions uh, in India and and the Middle East, they have seen uh, in the in the last century that they, they they have lost their two centers of powers, and the lands have been divided on a on a nation state model, and so from two major centers we have now around 55 plus small statelets and these statelets um, they revolve around um, uh, initially uh, around the, those two colonial powers like Britain and France yeah. but since after uh, 1945 Americans obviously came in and a lot of the regional states then uh, start revolving around, uh, around America. Yeah. Now in this context what we need to understand is that uh, Khamenei in the, in the 1979 revolution as Professor Scott mentioned he came in but th- BBC reported a few years ago that there were some discussions that took place between uh, Mr. Khomeini and, uh, the, Americans. A- and, and the Americans, uh, as, you, as you correctly mentioned. Uh, actually, if it was not American, it's it's like it, it was the CIA, yeah, it was a to, docu- be, to be a little bit more precise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, so my reading is that uh, Amer- uh, although there, are, there has been many uh, words, uh, uh, war of words in the last 40 years we've mm-hmm. seen between the Iranian regime the, uh, and, and the U.S. successive U.S. Uh, governments, uh, but the reality is that Iran has not ever taken any uh, any physical or material uh, action or steps against the U.S. interest. In no. fact, Iran, if you look at uh, the track record, Iran, Iran has been uh, following the U.S. line when it comes to Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, Syria. In fact, they have played a very positive role uh, f- for, uh, for for the U.S. Uh, foreign policy interests. Yeah. And in return, uh, I think uh, we, we can see that uh, Americans have, uh, the successive regime, uh, American administrations, they have kept the, the this Iranian uh, so-called Islamic regime in place. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's been a trade-off between the two powers. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I see this in this context, basically. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, uh, Professor uh, Scott, you, you, you've just been listening to uh, those comments by our political analysts sitting here in the studio, Abu Isra. I mean, in terms of look, looking at the US policy in the region, uh, Professor Scott, right? Uh, I mean, they, they, uh, you know, uh, you know it's, it was coined very famously, you know, that the, the non-nation has any, you know, perpetual friends. It's just perpetual interests that these nations have, right? And I think that's what, you know, Abu Isra is alluding to, that, you know, you've got the Americans, you've got the British, uh, and then their political capital states and, and they're after their own interests. Now, U.S. policy in the region is, you know, a lot of people are talking about destabilization and creating of all of these reactionary military militancies, right? Which, uh, you know, the, the, the Iranians have supported the, the U.S., you know, for their you know, profit for, for a very long time. And the U.S., for example, happily planted in an Iranian-backed regime in Iraq, for example, right? Uh, helped maintain the Syrian status quo, etc., etc. So well, what's the what, what's the, the bigger game in, in, in the region? Is it is it a case of now aligning the, the Sunni states of the region, of the Gulf region, plus Israel against Iran? Is that the, the, the uh, you know, bringing in Israel into the normalization element and then uh, Iran becomes the, the bogeyman of the region or is it something else? Well, I think the problem with saying that about the Middle East is there isn't just one issue across the Middle East. There are many issues yeah. across the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you can see those issues align, as your studio guest was talking about, where sometimes it might be in your interest to quietly work with each other. So think about when the Islamic State took over one-third of Iraq and took over part of Syria. Mm-hmm. There was a window where, in effect, the Iranians and the Americans had a common interest in pushing ISIS back. Yeah. But generally what we have seen is for two reasons, is that Iran and America will generally be pitted against each other. Now, one of those reasons 
has been really this touchstone of the idea of Israel and Palestine. Yeah. Because, of course, America's really been tied to Israel since probably the 1967 war. Hmm. And, of course, Iran likes to portray itself, although sometimes I'm quite cynical they really are, but they portray themselves as the, they're the defenders of the Palestinians. Yeah, yeah. But the second issue, which I think is really, and this is where I have to sort of, we'd love to have a discussion with your studio guests, which means the interests don't really converge, and they are genuinely after each other, has been what we've seen since 2011 with the changes in all the countries across the Middle East. Mm. So, for example, when you talk about Syria and the rising in Syria, Iran's dedication to keeping the Assad regime in place. It wasn't that the Americans necessarily wanted to get rid of Assad, but they didn't want to support the Iranians in that. Mm. And that's led to a very deadly combination in Syria where the civilians have paid the price for it. If you talk about in Yemen, the Americans, of course, because of Saudi Arabia, have tended to support the Saudi intervention in Yemen, Yes. whereas the Iranians tend to back the Houthi insurgency, and so the the two tend to clash with each other, and guess who pays the price for that? Yemeni civilians. And in the same way in Iraq... Iraqi people want to be able to control their own fate. They want to be able to get a responsible government, which right. isn't just Shia versus Sunni, Shia mm-hmm. versus Kurd, but, but you know, represents the whole country. Yeah. But because Iran wants a government that serves its interest, and the Americans want a government that serves their interest, Absolutely. guess who gets caught in the middle? Yeah. The Iraqi people. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, okay, uh, gents, we've got about three, three minutes left. Uh, very, very quickly, concluding statements from from all all the gents if, if we may uh, professor scott uh, you know whilst you, you you are speaking why, why don't you take a, a minute to just conclude i mean you know world war world war three is, is that something that we, we genuinely need to fear or is, is that just hype and we're going to see a de-escalation i mean i am pretty much we, we've seen a bit of de-escalation a bit of a quieter per- period now but it's far too early isn't it at the moment we, we don't know what's what's planet what's been uh, discussed in the background especially with this uh, plane that's been you know br- you know brought down in, in in, in Iran also and accusations and counter accusations around that. What, what are your thoughts, uh, Professor Scott, in terms of how, how this is going to end? No, I'm not going into the bunker myself. Okay, uh, yeah, okay that's when, good. I think when the Iranians carefully calibrated that attack for show against the uh, Iraqi bases with U.S. personnel, making sure they didn't have any casualties, they were signaling they don't want a military confrontation. But the reason why I like to push that World War III question aside is, look, even if there's not World War III, we have got all these issues that continue that we've talked about where people are suffering, and we need to stop making it a battle between the U.S. and Iran and trying to get all sides to act responsibly. Thank you very much. Start to deal with these questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Scott, for joining us on Friday Night Live. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I want to go straight to uh, Mohammed Atif. Mohammed Atif, your your concluding statements. uh, Sorry for making you hold for a bit longer than I wanted to, to be honest with you. Um, How how is this going to end, Mohammed Atif, in your opinion? Um, I think we have to worry about the insurgencies more than World War III because there is so much fighting going on in so many parts of the world. Yeah. If we really want to see peace, we have to uh, address these smaller insurgencies and terrorist groups operating in different territories, in different circumstances. I think that's the bottom line where we okay. need to focus 
and try to figure out how do we want to Muhammad Asif, th- you know, end these insurgencies. Thank you very much for your time and thank you very much for joining us once again on Friday Night Live. Uh, Brother Abu Israel, you've got 30 seconds. I just would like to quickly say that uh, Muslims actually of the region, they, they want uh, an independent policy, independent of the global powers, to be honest. Uh, the, these powers need to stop meddling into the affairs of other lands. I mean, the U.S. is thousands of miles away. Miles away. What are they doing in Iraq and, uh, and, and the, in this region? Actually, this beggars belief that we're talking about insurgencies and all that. But I mean, there are powers, these international powers are coming into the region, causing all sorts of troubles. So Muslims need an independent way forward now. Mm. Uh, and we have enough of these wars and uh, meddling into our affairs. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Abu Isra, for joining us in the studio for the last hour. And Brother Zafar has been so patient. But you know what? <laughs> I had to. I had to because you're our, our home home guest. No, and uh, presenter, inshallah, I'm going to come back to you when we come back in the next hour. No because I, I know you wanted to say 101 things. No, that's fine, inshallah. Yeah, you're okay, inshallah. Experts there. Jazakallah for your patience. And we're going to go into commercial break, listeners. Inshallah, we'll be back in, in a couple of minutes. Until then, assalamu alaikum. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to Friday Night Live with me, Hafiz Shaban, on this eve, Friday, the 10th of January uh, 2020 evening. Uh, now it's turned 7 o'clock, and mashallah, we've just had a, a very interesting first hour where we've been discussing we're discussing China Pakistan uh, economic border, the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, very, very interesting insights into some of the facts and figures around that initiative uh, and who are the main benefactors of that uh, in particular uh, economic program between China and Pakistan. What, what, it would be interesting to hear some of the indigenous Pakistanis and, and their thoughts on the on the actual benefits on the ground in Pakistan. 01582481822 uh, 0779481822 if you want to send in an SMS or a WhatsApp, you know, you can do that and you can say whatever you like. I'll only read out the, the bits that need to go on the air. Uh, and then the last half an hour we were just discussing the tensions between Iran and US, right? So we, we had, mashallah, some fantastic experts. We had Professor Scott Lucas, we had Mohammed Atif from, from Washington. We were supposed to also speak to a, a brother in Dubai. Unfortunately, we couldn't get to him because the amount of guests that we had and some interesting opinions on what's been happening between Iran and US. Are they on the same page? Are they aligned interests or are they divergent interests, right? So that was interesting uh, in terms of uh, US policy in the region and Iranian aspirations within the region right unfortunately I wasn't able to go to brother Zafar and I wasn't able to get an opinion from uh, brother uh, in fact before I go on to the, uh, getting an opinion from brother Zafar let me also introduce our new guest that's joined us in the studio mashallah it's great to welcome uh, the editor of five pillars mashallah brother Roshan Muhammad Saleh right so Muhammad Roshan is of course as I said the editor of five pillars a lot of you will know five pillars mashallah a journalist for the last 19 years you know being there with Al Jazeera being there with the you know press TV 
and, and and currently quite focused i understand on five pillars and mashallah what a what a, what a medium that is for bringing news to the muslim community in the uk so welcoming you first time in the studio brother russians welcome to to inspire fm and welcome to friday night live assalamualaikum thank you very much for inviting me yeah you're welcome okay all right so so let's let's start off very quickly because we're going to get the guest for the next story uh, brother zafar you, you were so patient and i have to apologize to you yeah, I, th- I think most of the points i wanted to make were covered by i think some excellent guests we've had this uh, um, this evening mashallah very talented and i guess very sort of uh, um, knowledgeable people uh, the only thing i wanted to add really was was i think iran did act responsibly uh, in some ways i think it had to show its public that uh, it was going to retaliate to what was really a massive provocation and this was was no ordinary uh, you know thing it was, it was assassination of uh, a senior general uh, in iran uh, but I think it, it signaled what it was going to do. Um, and I think those signals were, were picked up by, by the Americans and evacuated. I don't know whether you saw some news clips, but yeah. there were news clips of uh, helicopters, you know, uh, flying around, sort of ferrying people from some of the bases. And if you look at the damage itself, uh, when, you, when, you look at, when you talk about missiles, you think missiles are capable of much more damage than mm. knocking out a building or, you know, a side of a building, etc. So I think... This was a calculated move to de-escalate the situation rather than mm. to escalate it, mm. but at the same time try and uh, placate the the nation. There was millions of people who turned up for the, the funeral. Yeah. Uh, so I think f- for that, I think in some ways, I think Iran needs to be commended for that. I think this could have got uh, quite ugly mm. for Iran and the Middle East as well, because you know uh, what would have happened next? What would be the escalation cycle, mm. etc. Mm. But having said that, um, I don't think, to be honest, uh, I know there's lots of pressure on America to to intervene, to attack Iran. Uh, I have a feeling, right, that there, there is a lot of cooperation that's ha- happening in the background. Yeah. Iran used to be a key ally of America many years ago, and I suspect they'll still have contacts within the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I guess that the, the key glaring evidence for that is that in both the engagements, the two engagements that have taken place, in fact, three engagements that have taken place uh, in Iraq, uh, in Syria, in Afghanistan, yeah. uh, Iran has, has gained... Uh, yeah. So I think in some ways, I think, you know, you can put that down to sort of Iranian, Iranian strategy. Uh, but at the same time, I think there is there is a level of cooperation between yeah. America and anyone. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for that. And uh, Brother Roshan, uh, y- your thoughts on the, on the tensions? Of course, Five Pillars has been covering this story uh, quite widely. number of stories already are, are still featuring on, on, on the site. W- w- what did you make of the tensions and, and w- w- what do you make of the next steps? Right. So we've had a bit of de-escalation w- with, uh, with the retaliation, uh, you know, a bit of a heads up of the retaliation. And then it's gone a bit quiet with the words of, uh, you know, war words. But we've seen the, 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 the passenger plane go down and the accusations mm. against Iran at the moment also. So it's not completely completely entirely going away and I'm sure there's a lot more happening in the, behind the scenes what's your what's your thoughts on this well maybe I can tell you a little bit more about the Iranian point of view because mm. uh, I know a lot of Iranians and I've been speaking to them over the last uh, week uh, and quite intensively actually and there's two camps in Iran one camp is that we're not ready for war this is a mm. superpower mm. you know we may be a regional power but America's a superpower mm. and can really do a lot of damage and Iran has made quite a lot of gains in places like Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine over the last couple of decades, and it could see all those gains reversed. So that's the more pragmatic camp, which has probably worn out. Mm. The more hardline camp is that they took out our top general. Mm. We have to respond in kind. And if 
we don't respond in kind, mm. then we haven't established deterrence. Mm. Uh, so that is the worry of the more hardline camp, is that they haven't hit America hard enough. They clearly, it clearly was a limited attack, what they did. It was unprecedented. I, mm. I don't think an American base has been hit by a state since World War II. Yeah. And they didn't get a response. So yeah. that is an achievement. Mm. But ultimately, they took out... Iran's top general, a national symbol, mm. uh, a national hero in Iran. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't really a response in kind. Ultimately, I think this fight has been deferred to a later day. I don't actually agree that I think uh, Iran's uh, and America's interests don't align, uh, align fundamentally in the Middle East. So I think a bigger fight has been postponed to another day. Hmm. All right, fantastic. Good, good, good summary, uh, chaps. So thank you very much for that. All right, we, we are going to move on to the next story. I'm just waiting for the for the guest to to be lined up for the next story, and that is uh, the way the Muslims are covered in the in the media. Right. So it's an, it's an interesting story and some comments that were actually made by one of the regulators of the press regulator rather, uh, who said that the Muslims are treated differently by newspapers. It's great to have uh, Sir Alan Moses himself who was uh, existing or possibly has now stepped down as the chairman of the Independent Press Standards Organization. Uh, Sir Alan Moses, welcome to Friday Night Live on Inspire FM. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Not at all. Good evening. Good evening. Fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us. So, I mean, a very interesting uh, article, very interesting comments with regards to the way the Muslims are treated differently by, by press. Unfortunately, I, I observed that it's, it's a bit late. You, you're about to leave your post. If, you, if not, you've already well, left I have. that. I, I left it. I've already left. I left. Right. So I, I was hoping you, you would have made, made that statement a lot earlier whilst you were the regulator and you could have enforced some of that regulation we, 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 you know, over the body that you, you preside over. But of course your successor is now coming in and he's got that job to provide that guidelines. But first let, let's, let's talk about your observations because those observations are something that the Muslim community has, has been calling out for a very long time, isn't it? Yes, I'm very well aware that they feel very strongly that they're treated unfairly in the press mm. uh, and uh, okay so they're treated very unfairly in the press but they really haven't had uh, any recourse to actually get that uh, uh, readdressed right or, or get that you know uh, looked at well, looked at looked at and and you know fairly uh, you, you know addressed and and uh, you know a rec you know and a recourse you know outlined well i think that the, the problem is that the expectation of what they would like compared with what the rules are yeah. are very different. Mm. The, the, there are rules about accuracy and distortion. Yeah. And if there's a breach, then IPSA, the Independent Press Standards Organization, will act. But the real one of the real problems that we come across is the feeling that they're picked out that people of a certain religion or ethnic background are picked out for generalizations that are unfair. Mm. But then you have to ask the question, well, what sort of rule would you have? How would you draft a rule that would deal with this? And that's when it all becomes very difficult. Mm, that, that, that's interesting. So, of course, I mean, just just for our listeners, so we we have Sir Alan Moses, who has now stepped down as the chairman of the Independent Press Standards Organisation, right? 
okay, so so okay, so that that's interesting in terms of those particular views. I mean, I mean, going forward now with your successor coming in, I I, I do read that there's a, a, I don't know if it's already been published, but the voluntary guidance for for journalists. I mean, again, emphasize the voluntary guidance for journalists when writing about the Muslims. So, well, what's uh, what's the latest update on that then, uh, Salon? Well, I I mean, not being there now, I don't know what's happened right. last week. Mm. But I think there's going to be some further consultation this month, and my expectation and hope was that it would be published next month, so that would be February right. of this year, I hope. Right, so okay, so your expectations for that to be published next month, uh, and then of course, as you said, your reign has now been handed over. To, is it to uh, Mr. Edward Folks? Is it then? Uh, then you, Lord, Lord Edward Folks. Yeah. yeah, Lord Edward Folks. So it's it's to be seen in terms of what then actually comes about with regards to that voluntary guidance and and how well that's actually then uh, meted out in in into the media. I understand the challenge of you know providing guidelines uh, to to the media as opposed to then stipulating how you write about Muslims, but you know I. Yeah. I do have in, in in the studio uh, the editor uh, the editor of Five Pillars, which is a uh, which is a Muslim media outlet uh, and a quite yeah. prominent one within the UK. I mean. Uh, Sir Alan Moses, you know, writes about himself and he says, I speak for myself, but I have a suspicion that Muslims are from time to time written about in a way that newspapers would simply not write about Jews and Roman Catholics. And yet, what I'm hearing in terms of the words from Sir Alan Moses is that we can't quite do anything about it apart from provide some voluntary guidelines and hope for the best, I guess. Well, we can do about it if it's inaccurate. If, if but, it's inaccurate, factually problem. inaccurate. But I mean, that that's the problem here. We're in a bit of a grey area yeah. where they're writing about, about the Muslim community as they wouldn't write about the Jews and, and the Roman Catholics. It's not just the distorting of facts, because then it's, it's a very binary discussion, isn't it? Yes, or, or, or right that's or wrong. Right. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, to do with... Um, it's those headlines that we see all the time, it, right? It's the dangers of generalisation, I mm. But, uh, the, the moment you group people together and attribute certain uh, beliefs or characteristics, you run into very great danger, and I think that's something I'm very well aware of. Mm. I mean, the, the moment you have a an atrocity committed by mad murderers and in pretending to be in the name of Islam, it's terribly wounding and upsetting for someone who has that faith. I mean, frightened to go out during the day in case they're going to be shouted at or worse in the streets. And it's what you do about that is is very um, difficult but important, I think. Right. Okay. So I, I guess there's, there's a there's a local example. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know whether you, you, you heard or not, but there was a, a Luton-based um, terrorist who who was captured before he actually went on to conduct, um, you know, his uh, his acts. Yes. Uh, and, and I think he's going to trial this week, mm. or he went to trial last week, and there's been a, a small piece in a local local media, the local news, free newspaper, uh, hidden away in, in the pages in between. Whereas I think, you know, had that been, yeah. had this person been a Muslim, had the targets not been Muslims, the expectation would have been that that would have been that was that was that was a high headline atrocity all over the headline. Yes. Exactly. But what you're saying is is that there's nothing, there's no guideline in Ipsa to actually uh, try to uh, redress well, well, that, that there, sense of balance. I'm hoping that 
And, and that's not right. I'm hoping that there yeah. will be, because yeah. uh, the question, the unnecessary racial or religious identification is very dangerous. Mm. So that the journalists have to ask themselves how relevant it is mm. to mention to, to mention, mention the religion that the, the murderer or the terrorist purports to uh, invoke. Yeah. So, so this it is may the, not. Be. Yeah. So, so I mean, this is the, this is the problem that. If you've got someone saying, I am setting off a bond in the name of the Roman Catholic Church, mm. um, you, it's, it, I mean, it's, uh, why is it relevant? Because everybody knows that it has actually nothing to do with that religion. Mm. Absolutely. Okay, uh, I, I want to bring in uh, Brother Roshan uh, and get you, get your views on 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 this particular uh, story, Brother Roshan. Right, so you covered it on Five Pillars. Mm. Uh, we've got a we, we, uh, you know I, IPSO right uh, is publishing a voluntary guidance for journalists right when writing about Muslims next month. Hopefully that that's what Salman's saying. Hopefully he he expects that to be issued in uh, next month. But that's the point. It's, it's a voluntary guidance. I get that the difficulty in actually making some <coughs> stipulations, and and it's not. A question of factually being correct or incorrect or maybe we can argue that factually well, quite also. often it is yeah okay um, so so maybe we can argue that it's a factual but but you know yeah. you know it's 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 a bit of a, a conundrum it's a bit of a difficult one uh, but there is a clear bias and um, there's, uh, there's no doubt about it i mean this story that brother zafar is just pointing to is a clear demonstration of that what's your perspective um, as someone I, from media what do you what do you think can be done there's two things to say one is that um as Muslims, we're sick and tired of the press in particular targeting us. Mm. That is how we feel. And I hope, uh, I appreciate Sarah Moses coming out with these comments. I think uh, a lot of people wouldn't have. I, I wish it would have been addressed more when you were actually head of it. So, but ultimately, we feel under siege well, as a community. I was saying these things, although I just didn't get as much publicity in mm. the press. Okay. We, we so you, you yourself were a victim of, uh, I guess, the, the the way the the press operates. Well, you when you raise a really problem, how you see, it's not just a question of stopping people saying things; it's also encouraging them. I mean, my Muslim friends would come and see me and say, "Why are there no positive stories about yeah. the good that these so, so different so, communities so, so, do?" We, we need to go. Yeah, if I could just well, finish my point, that would be great. So, so, so Alan, if we could, we could just let Brother Roshan finish his points first. I'll yeah. be really quick. Yeah, go on. We feel under siege as a community. I think the Muslim Council of Britain did some analysis not so long ago, which found that um, you know the national newspapers in particular uh, had an incredible amount of negative stories about Muslims. I think the Times, the Telegraph, the Mail and the Express were really egregious kind of culprits when it came to that. Uh, and for Ipso to turn around and say, yes, it's a bad thing, but we can't do much about it, really isn't good enough. Because mm. Ultimately, if it was Jews being targeted, let's call a spade a spade. If it was Jews being targeted, the Jewish community would not stand for this. So why should the Muslim community stand for this, being targeted all the time? Ultimately, mm. we are citizens of this country mm. like everybody else. The second mm. thing I want to say is, uh, is Ipso itself fit for purpose? Mm. Ultimately, is it really independent? It is funded mm. by the newspapers themselves, yeah. a lot of them which have clearly targeted Muslims. Is it an independent body? Is it fit for purpose why hasn't it issued a fine or sanctioned some of these newspapers heavily that is a clear failure in my point uh, from my point of view 
I, I think th those are very good points from Brother Roshan, uh, Sir Alan Moses. I mean, uh, what do you say with regards to? Okay, fine. There maybe there isn't a clear, you know, you know, you know, a flagrant, you know, violation of a regulation. Okay, and these are purely yeah. guidelines. But when you're seeing that consistent pattern, there has to be some kind of an ethic, moral, I don't know, principles of you know that should be you know applied well, and said. Look, this is totally unfair. Well, of course, uh, uh, of course, uh, to the extent that it's correct, it's unfair. Mm. But are we going to have a rule that says the press has to be fair? Mm. And if you do have such a rule, how are you going to enforce it? Mm. What, what are you going? What rule are you going to apply that says to a newspaper you've got to be fair, that you've got to stop publishing negative stories? Mm. And if you ask that question, it seems to me there's absolute there's no answer to it. Mm. Unless, you're, are you, are you, unless you want to license newspapers. If you license them and say you shall not publish unless you are fair, which is what you do with broadcasters, yes. you could then enforce such rules. But uh, we don't license, we haven't tried to license newspapers since about 1640, I think, was the last time. And I, for one, yet against it. Are we going to send editors to prison for publishing an unlicensed newspaper. Yeah, well, of course we're not. What I'm saying to you is that you may be right, but what is the... Re that nobody thinks about the remedy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I get the challenge. Like, uh, Brother Zephyr, you, yeah, you want to say something? Uh, yes, I'm just going to suggest maybe that that if you if you asked, this is this is a, a newspaper owners in particular, I guess. Uh, if you if you uh, if your guidelines included the fact that headlines had to be from the main story, the headlines had to be from the main story, i.e., they can't be made up, and the photographs which are attached to the stories had to be relevant to the story and current to the story. I think that will make a big a big difference because a lot of the cases, well, if you read the details of the, the articles, uh, they do convey some facts, but it's the headlines which I think distort the, the and create a false image. But, but uh, I mean, Sir Alan, I mean, there's, there's a, a very well, simple... you right about yeah, that. Go on, go on. There is a rule that says that the headline has to be supported by what's in the article. Mm. And I mean, that was the... Um, uh, and there have been examples where Ipso has upheld complaints because the headline wasn't supported by the substance of the article. Hmm. Hmm. I, I mean, uh, what about actually, you know, the use of the, the the name of the religion itself? I mean, clearly, I mean, you know, if, if you're talking about a rule, uh, you know, a rule that would, you know, that we would be able to use and apply, then it, it's clear that Christianity is not used, Judaism is not used, but Islam and Muslims are used everywhere. I mean, that, that rule, I think, would pretty, pretty hold quite, uh, quite, quite well. Yes, but what if you have a terrorist falsely invoking the religion? Okay, I mean, I, I, I not publish that. No, I'm, I, mean, I mean that's one of the problems that have happened. Doesn't have there? it in I mean, quotes in the in the article in the article itself. Sir, 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 sorry, Salen. I mean, a lot of murderous madmen mm. in recent history have been invoking totally unjustified the particular religion. 
Are yeah. you saying to the newspaper you shouldn't publish that? But I mean, I mean, the, the point here is, is, is it plausible or not? I mean, we, we have the the, the right wing, you know, murderers. We have the you know people might, who might do it in in the name of other religions. But what we're saying is, of course, when it comes to Islam and Muslims, it's always the religion. But I want I, we've only got two or three minutes left, and I want to go back to uh, Brother Roshan uh, Muhammad Saleh's co a comment earlier uh, with regards to the real independence of you know the, this body that is you know overseeing the yeah. the press i mean and, and that's a very valid point because it's all funded by well, the now, papers themselves but but who else was going to pay do you really want a press regulator paid for by the government goodness sake it leveson recommended that the press the people who are regulated should pay for it and that's what happens but i can assure you that people like me and the people on my committees are entirely independent nobody told us what to say or what to think Right. And the sources of the funds are aggrieved over a five-year period. They have absolutely no hold over us as a result of the money. Right. So that I totally reject the allegation that we're not independent. Okay. All I right. think there are real problems that you've importantly highlighted this evening, of which I'm daily conscious, because it is foul to feel that you're a victim mm. of this general prejudice caused by generalizations and i think that you constantly have to fight against it and to answer it but i'm not sure that rules preventing people publishing is the answer i think we want more publications we want more of you to speak out mm. and i think it's really important what you do right oh, okay both, uh, both radio television and in the newspapers yeah, great uh, so uh, 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 bro brother roshan all right rules is not the answer right but we clearly see uh, a, a, you know a dominant trend yeah, right which is about you know attacking islam and the muslims right so if rules I, is not the I, answer I, what's I the answer i honestly would like to see i mean the answer is to regulate the newspapers like tv is regulated mm. that's my answer because um you know broadcast broad Broadcast journalism doesn't target us in the same way. Could I ask, well, uh, Sir Alan, before you go, did you feel when you were head of Ipso, yet. did you feel as though some editors did have an anti-Muslim agenda? No, I think that, uh, I don't think they had that sort of agenda, but I think they, they were from time to time very careless. Mm. They didn't think about the uh, impact and the context in which the articles were written and published. Yeah, and I, th I think the problem and is so that... In a way, I mean, it's, it's no defence. Yeah. But I don't think it was deliberate. I think it was inattention. Right. It was I mean, right. I think that's just as dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm going to say, uh, you know, okay, inattention and, and, and just careless. I mean, isn't, isn't careless journalism and lazy, you know, they, they, they call it lazy journalism precisely one of the reasons why we have... It's not an excuse. It's, it's like, it's it's like yeah. saying the Iraq war was a mistake. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a mistake. It's, it's yeah. deliberate. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Okay. What was sorry? So sorry. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, Russian was was saying that that that's not acceptable, and it, you know, and it's not good enough to say, oh, it was just a mistake. I mean, lazy journalism yeah, well, or carelessness is just not. A, I yeah. wasn't saying it as an excuse. I was yeah. saying it as an accusation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, so, Alan Moses, unfortunately, we're going to go into a commercial break. We've, we're end of the, the half Lovely. an hour allocated all, to the story. Thank you very much for your time this very evening. Very good wishes to you all. Fantastic. Thank, thank, thank you very indeed. much thank for, you. for your time this evening and joining us Lovely. on Inspire FM. Thank you very much. That was thank Sir you. Alan Moses. Thank you for speaking to me. Thank you. That was Sir Alan Moses, uh, who was the, previously the head of the, the commission overseeing uh, the press regulator, right? Overseeing, you know, newspapers 
papers and, and, and the other news agency bodies within the UK. In, interesting comments, but as you know, rightly pointed out by Roshan and myself, you know, those comments are coming very late in the day when you're actually now transitioning into into your next role, and then it's, it's, it is this point of but I, voluntary, I think it's, it's voluntary start, it versus. It started a debate, to be honest, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, he didn't have to say anything even after retiring, yeah. but the fact that he has, I think yeah. it, it is. I think it, it may lead to some good. I think. All right, we're going we're to go into commercial break. Let's come back and, and let's just digest that uh, and, and get some thoughts in terms of what practically would be good to see. Uh, uh, listeners, we, we are going to go into a commercial break. We'll be back for the last half an hour. Do join us then. Until then, assalamu alaikum alaykum alaykum. This is Atif Nawaz and you're listening to an Inspire FM podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to Friday Night Live with me, Hafiz Shaban, on this uh, Friday, the 10th of January. Uh, now turning to 19.30, so 7.30. We're now into the last half an hour of the show. Be good to hear some of your thoughts on the show this evening. 01582 is the number here in the studio. If you want to speak to uh, anyone in the, in, the, in the studio, any of the panelists, uh, to myself, on any of the stories that we've covered this evening, 01582 822 is the number uh, for your SMS WhatsApp messages 0779 0779481822 we still have brother Roshan from Five Pillars here in, in the studio and we still got brother Zafar and I'm going to go straight to them and I want to get brother uh, Roshan's uh, views on that last story that we were covering and you know what as 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 listeners right as listeners as members of this community as members of this society you know you all the time you're listening to the media you're reading media you're reading media stories and you must be fed up right mm. Muslims Muslims Islam Islam and and the distinction and the clarity between the way the Muslims are dealt with and treated in the media versus any of the other religions is just completely so obvious and, and blatant I, I don't know why there can't be some you know more than guidelines but some laws to actually stipulate you know equal coverage of, of faiths right uh, you know and, and there, there, I'm sure there's we can we could you know you know, with, with all these intelligent minds, you know, in, in these bodies, come up with some kind of guidelines, uh, you know, not guidelines, but some kind of rules, right? Just to say that guidelines and the guidelines are not enforceable, and then we can't really do much more than just go and have these conversations with these editors. And, and none of these editors have got, that was interesting, none of these editors have got an anti Islamic agenda. I mean, that, that for me was quite an incredible comment. Yeah. But anyway, Brother Rush, your, your thoughts on, on that discussion? Well, I think that, I mean, Salah Moses says Ipso is independent. No one's telling him what to do. I'm sure no one is over him telling him, do this, do that. Mm. But reality... Uh, and this applies to any organization. If you follow the money, you know who's making the decisions. Yeah. That is the reality in every single organization in the whole world. Uh, and often the pressure doesn't have to be direct. It can right. be much more subtle. Yeah. You know, even if the very threat of funding being withdrawn is there, hanging out there in the ether, that is a subtle form of pressure. Mm. The fact is, Ipso hasn't fined anybody. Mm. Uh, and uh, it hasn't sanctioned anybody harshly either. That in itself is extremely telling. It's been in existence for, I think, over four years now. 
and it really hasn't taken any harsh action against any of the newspapers L- that regulate. For, for the last four years? Yeah, at really? least, yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, I think that ultimately what we have um, in broadcast journalism, for example, Ofcom regulates it. Hmm. Uh, and there are strict guidelines uh, that broadcast journalists must follow hmm. uh, when it comes to impartiality and discrimination, etc., etc. Hmm. Uh, and those guidelines are in force and uh, offenders are fined and sanctioned and perhaps even taken off air. Now, that kind of regulation, and that's why we feel less targeted by the BBC or ITV than we do by the Times and the Telegraph. The the, the press Mm. is not regulated like that at all. It's a a self-regulation process which goes on, and self-regulation ultimately means no regulation. Mm. And for my my understanding, IPSO really is just a front organisation, really, Mm. which is there to give the impression that the press is being regulated. Mm. But all it is really is a math piece for the press itself. Mm-hmm. So what we need is the newspaper. The newspapers in this country, I mean, they just won Boris Johnson an election. Yeah. You know, they are yeah. they are overwhelmingly yeah. right wing, yeah. Tory, you know, pro-war, pro-capitalist. And there are some uh, exceptions, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they don't have that regulation in place to, you know, kind of curb those excesses. And mm. that's what we desperately need. And mm. Muslims, you know, we shouldn't be begging for this. I mean, the, the, the reason why that regulation doesn't exist is because we're not a strong enough lobby, ultimately. Mm. Uh, and we don't have the, the levers of power that can be pulled mm. uh, to enable that to happen. Yeah. But as I said, we're, we're not guests in this country. No. We're citizens. We have rights. So we must be demanding this because yeah. it wouldn't, there wouldn't even be a question about accuracy or what can we do yeah. we want to do something but we can't do it mm. that conversation would not take place I mean, if it was the jewish community under attack no, no, even even that conversation i mean, just i just found out i, I mean i mean it's what, what what can we do i mean i mean that i mean that part of the reason it wouldn't happen to the jewish community is because yeah. the jewish community would act yeah. right if there's something inaccurate or something inflammatory written by them they would act right, whether it's, it's legal nor ways or whether ways. Mm. And the thing is that the, the, the community is very docile. Muslim community is very docile. Mm. They expect things to happen, right, but don't take the steps in, in making them happen. Can right. I just and say I that, that there's two there's two actually quite encouraging developments over the last year. First of all, the Muslim Council of Britain yeah. has got this media monitoring unit headed by I think McDad Versi, yeah. the Assistant Secretary General, and he's uh, basically forensically going after all the mistakes uh, targeting Muslims in the national newspapers. Getting corrections etc yeah. etc et so that's one thing it's not enough but it's a good it's thing part of MCB, the second right? thing is that mm. there are lawyers out there mm. uh, there is a Rahman Law, Law uh, solicitors in East London which have literally gone after uh, the Times and the Telegraph in particular and won many many victories um, I'm mean, talking about legal victories in the high court with newspapers having to apologize print apologies and also pay compensation mm. to that's victims yeah. so there's, there's that double route okay. which is happening all right good stuff right. Ch- Unfortunately, great conversation, but we got to move on to our next story, right? And you're going to be pleasantly surprised. We've got a positive story to cover. Sure. Uh, so it's always good, right, that, that we've got a positive story to cover. And we've got brother Kamal, uh, not Kamal, but Kamran Hussein from Birmingham, who's going to be joining us to give us a bit more about this. But uh, let, me, let me tell you, brothers, here in the studio what the story is. Birmingham Muslims are being given shelter to homeless throughout winter. 
All right, so mashallah, some good initiatives there in Birmingham. Uh, rough sleepers will be able to bunk down safely in a central location for as long as the cold snap lasts, right? Which generally is is, is at least a few few months, I I, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, bro- Brother Kamran Hussain, uh, Asalaamu Alaikum and Jazakallah for joining us on Friday Night Live on Inspire FM. Welcome. Uh, how are you? Walaikum Asalaam. Walaikum Asalaam wa rahmatullah. All right. Uh, okay. Jazakallah. Okay. T- tell us more about this initiative. What, what's what, what's driven this uh, this uh, local initiative by the Muslim community in Birmingham? Well, I mean, there's there's quite a lot of homeless in Birmingham, yeah. and and we've had quite a, a a problem here for a number of years now. It's on the increase. Um, we've had a number of deaths in Birmingham. Um, a lot of organisations, Muslim organisations included, have, have you know done quite a lot in terms of projects. Um, and this year, you know, um, some of those projects can be quite difficult. For example, you know, last year, I mean, I'm the chief exec at Greenland Mustard. I don't know if you've heard of it, but we're based, yeah. based in Small Heat in Birmingham. Okay. Um, and last year, we ran, ran a similar project where we opened our doors to the homeless for four weeks. Um, so every night, we were feeding them, home, you know, house, housing them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was quite a difficult project to, you know, to keep it open for that for that number of, you know, weeks, um, it required, you know, financial resources, uh, you know, uh, you know, connecting up with all the restaurants to arrange food. Yeah. Um, so we had about, you know, on average about 15 people a night, 25 on our, you know, coldest nights when it was, you know, below zero. And, you know, it requires a number of volunteers as well. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, certainly not easy because, you know, you get an eclectic mix of people. They have a number of problems. Some of them psychological, others drugs, alcohol, etc. Right, right. So it's not easy managing you know those those people, and you do need a, a you know a fair number of volunteers to do it. Um, so by the end of that month, Alhamdulillah, you know we managed to house about ten people. Um, um, okay. You know, mashallah, one person you know was coming there every night. He was reading the ground. He even became a Muslim. Mashallah. Mashallah. Um, and you know, um, and, and I'll tell you an interesting story. Actually, there was there was one chap who came in one night, and um, you know we had one of our scout leaders who was volunteering that night. You know, he's he's you know he knows first aid, and we saw that he had a wound on his hand. Mm. So he you know he said, look, you know this this could be quite serious. And thankfully that night some. Some nurses had heard about us on the ITV local news, right. so they popped in to give some support, and they, you know, saw his hand and said, "Look, if you don't get into a hospital, you know, God Allah, there's a likelihood he could die tonight because it mm. looks epic." So wow. he didn't want to go to the hospital um, because, you know, he was a drug user, and once he gets into hospital, he won't have access to his drugs or his drug pusher. Mm. So he, we had to coax him into a, an ambulance getting over to hospital, you know, and as soon as he got there, they had to operate on him, and the doctor said the same thing, you know, God, Allah, if you hadn't, you know, yeah. hadn't allowed you to bring him over tonight, it would have been very likely that he would have died, mm. right? And, you know, through that process, mashallah, he managed to wean himself off drugs at the time. We managed wow. to get him back in contact with his his family, which he hadn't spoken to or seen for, for, for quite a while, wow. and we seemed to get him back on track. Um, so that's that, that's the, some of the benefits, you know, coming mm. out from the work this sort of work and you know this year what we've done is we realized how difficult it was last year um, but we, we we definitely wanted to do it again so what we did was you know we we partnered up with a number of other organizations we've got a Safar in Birmingham we've got you know Muslim aid we've got you know a number of Masajid and Masjid al a great bar Muslim association uh, we said let's pool our resources together you know finances um, volunteers 
right? And, you know, rather than one of us, you know, taking the heavy load, we can all share it amongst ourselves and make it a lot easier. Yeah. So that's what we've done. Okay. You know, I've so far got a unit in Lionel Street in Birmingham. We've opened the doors. It's been open since Monday. Uh, we've allocated days to each mustard. Um, you know, we're feeding them. We're housing them. Uh, yeah, alhamdulillah, and it's a lot alhamdulillah. easier. And, and how many people are coming through those doors uh, seeking the support and the shelter, Brother Kamran? So at the moment, we're getting about 12 to 14. And right. now we might squeeze some more in. We had to turn a few away over the last few <coughs> days. So we're looking at how we can you know, practically get more, as many people as we can into the, into the unit. Yeah. Um, initially, we opened up uh, just for men, um, but we realized, you know, there are, you know, a couple of women turning mm-hmm. up as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, difficult to turn them away. So we Correct. created a secluded area and section for them with a separate yeah. you know, toilet and got a portaloo. Yeah, and delivered as well. So yeah, right. fantastic. And, and uh, the, the, you, you mentioned already the, the local ITV news. So you've you've had some good positive uh, media coverage yeah. on, on the initiative, Muslim community. Do you, add, add, you know, adding some positive. Yeah, we've been, yeah, we've been on ITV news. We've been on BBC news. We've been on um, BBC with that yesterday recording. Um, we've been on Birmingham Mail. Right. Um, and the difference is that you know. We, I mean, we, alhamdulillah, you know, Greenland Mushroom is quite well known. We probably have about 100 articles written about us, uh, you know, from the Metro to the Telegraph to the Times, the Guardian, etc., from all the work we do. Right. Um, and, you know, we, we, we probably have about 15 television appearances and about just as many radio appearances a year. Now, a lot of the stories we do, for example, celebrate Eid, which is the biggest, yeah. um, you know, Eid event in Europe, uh, mm. you know, outdoor event. You know, we run... Uh, you know, we get 80,000 people. It's one of the most tweeted stories yeah. uh, on, on the BBC. Wow. Now, when you look at the comments to those stories, they're still quite negative. Right. Right? Um, you know, people saying, well, why do Muslims need to run this event? And, oh, it creates a lot of congestion. Some of the standard stories that we get out there don't actually, you know, don't actually create positive PR. Yes. And, it's, we, and not that we do it for the PR. Yes. Right? Um, what we're doing, the reason we're doing it is to show the true face of Islam. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So, you know, because people have got a certain view of Islam, yes. we need to present the proper view of Islam. Yeah. Right? So, that's why, you know, we're doing it to please Allah, and yes. we're doing it to, to for show the, for the dawah, you know, yeah. what true Islam is. Yeah. yeah. So, so we've, right? we've, you'll be, you'll be good, you'll be glad to hear that we've got the editor of Five Pillars sitting here in, in the studio too, mashallah, right? It's right opposite me, right? So, uh, Brother Roshan, so Brother Roshan, of course, I mean, you know, you know, as Brother Kamran saying, you know, these positive stories, right, don't necessarily get that kind of level of media coverage. We're not, not surprised by that at all. But of course, we, we're going to try to push them as, as far and wide as we can into the mainstream media. But then, of course, we've got the Muslim out- outlets that are, are, are definitely do cover those positive you know stories to make sure that you know what that there's a there's a presence there there's a story there and you know we're we're, we're trying to get that word out as far and wide as possible right so, so it's good to 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 see that for example five Plus, you know regular covers those kind of stories i mean you know how important is it uh, and uh, you know to what extent are, 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 is the community are you you finding nationally you know being able to do that to try to project those kind of good initiatives out there in the mainstream media I mean, the community is doing it absolutely all the time, but the mm. media isn't generally covering it. I mean, even mm. ourselves, you know, mm. I was going to ask you for Brother Cameron's number so that we yeah. can go up and do that story because we yeah. haven't covered that story in particular. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the question of resources and yeah. uh, staff, etc. Uh, Muslim media generally is kind of under-resourced and mm. uh, understaffed, so we struggle to cover everything and the mainstream isn't that interested mm. uh, but yeah it's these kind of uh, initiatives on the ground that um, really kind of 
you know, I mean, all I can say is when, whenever we do a positive story on Five Pillars, mm. uh, it's it gets more traction than the negative stories. Or, oh, or it, yeah, it does oh, actually. That's yeah, interesting, right? but but generally, as journalists, yeah. we tend to consider news to be the negative stories. Correct. Yeah. Uh, these are the hot stories, and that's yeah. why we cover those stories. Yeah. And generally, that is true. Those are the stories that will get the most traction. But yeah. but on Five Pillars, Muslims, we're so starved of positive stories, aren't we? Mm. That we just um, we just latch onto it. Um, and um, and yeah, so uh, inshallah, long may that continue. Yeah. All right, good, brother Kamran, uh, Jazakallah here. And uh, as as brother Roshan said, we, we'll be providing your details to brother Roshan so that you can get five pillars to cover your your good old story. How, how long does this continue? Is it all throughout the month of January? Is it? No, we've extended it to the end of February now. Ah, oh, so mashallah, man. Wow, that's that's a very long long project. Inshallah, may Allah make it easy for you, brothers, and, and reward you immensely. Fantastic initiatives out there. Keep up the good work, inshallah. Zakalah. All right, Okay, listeners, that was uh, Brother Kamran uh, Hussein uh, from Birmingham giving us an, uh, an update in terms of the initiative that's going on in Birmingham. Brilliant initiative. Uh, I'm sure they've got something very similar happening here, Brother Zafar, in, in Luton, uh, but not quite the the, the shelter. The, 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 uh, but you know, the, the what is it? The the winter s- uh, yeah, kitchen yeah, or the, something, the, isn't it? There is the the Luton the soup kitchen. Soup kitchen. That's it. Soup yeah. kitchen that, that yeah. serves. I think regularly I think every Friday as far as I know yeah um, that there are schemes where basically I think Medina Masjid has been involved with this where they give out winter sort of kits for uh, for people you know the homeless people winter kits okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, hygiene like, and what well it's, it's warmth kits basically oh, warm yeah. so kit, you have okay. sleeping bags uh, tent maybe okay. something to keep sort of uh, dry yeah uh, those type of things um, and I think there's, there's always lots of initiative Inspire Family is involved in lots of initiative we had an initiative Last week, where we're in town, giving giving away free free food, basically. Oh, we're going uh, to come on to that in, in a minute. Yeah, just just yeah, those, yeah. those type of things. So yeah. there's a lot happening, um, and <laughs> I, I think, to be honest, uh, on the comment of publicity, you know, we need publicity. But more than that, we need support from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that we're doing it for mm. the right reason. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we're doing it is to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if that happens, then Allah will make you know, that known. Mm. Uh, if, I re- if, I, if our purpose is to do it so that we get a few headlines, uh, then we may get a few headlines, right? But yeah. Barakah isn't going to be in it. So I think the reason, the way, the proper way to do it is that we're doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then yeah. Because... And we, we want to please him. Yep, no, no, no doubt about that. But I mean, the, here the publicity is not for the individual, it's for the, the work that Muslims in general are doing. And that's to counter a very negative portrayal of, of Muslims. And that's very important. That is that one. Right? Well, the so, thing is, you, you'll get that. Mm. The thing is, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because yeah. you'll get the publicity if you're doing it genuinely. Yeah. yeah. If you're doing it for the headlines, you won't yeah, get it. Yeah, because yeah. because they, they'll, they'll realise you're doing it for the headlines. It is a shame, though, that we have to prove our humanity. Yeah, it? Yeah, it is true. Exactly. It's like we have to prove yeah, we are good yeah. People were yeah, nice yeah, people. Exactly, exactly. exactly. You know, it's, it's true. Like, it's true. But it's not a level playing field, is it? It's yeah. not a level, a level playing field. But we know the challenge that's out there, right? And mm. we know we're up against it. So it's a, you know, it's a, we're, we we're against you know, the we, we have to. So be... we, we have to do that. That, that's the mm. point, right? So we have to prove it. We have to prove that. Look, we're, we're involved in the positive ones. We have to do those initiatives, and we have to try to get that that publicity. Well, the thing is, we're, we're we, 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 we have to, but we have to do it because our dean is telling us to. Correct. Do it. I mean, that, that, that's we have, what motivates us. We have to be 
true to our nature. Yeah. If we're true to our nature, I, I'm not talking then about that, that speak for organizing. Us. Let's clean Luton and just go there and take a picture. Back <laughs> <laughs> home, yeah. And genuinely, all the all the litter still on the streets. Hey, might, so. That might happen. You don't know. So. Yeah, I've, I've heard of those initiatives. But anyway, chaps, we we're, we're gonna move on. We're about got six minutes left of the, of the show. Mashallah. Uh, I, I tell you what, picked up. You know, I, I, every week, you know, the the, the team in, uh, at the front, uh, they they expect us producer to. To, to look at the stories and you know what what's caught our attention, mm. what's going to make a good story. And, and I saw this headline I was talking to you earlier, Brother Roshan, about it, which is Muslim population of England passes three million for the first time. And I, and I thought, well, I, I, I'm not sure, maybe I missed it, but uh, the, the mainstream media not cover that, man. That, that must have been a... The Daily Mail did. <laughs> I told yeah. you. Not uh, for good reasons. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They must have been alarmed and petrified. Yeah, <laughs> Tommy Robinson's going to be <laughs> very upset so, in his so, jail cell or wherever he is. <laughs> exactly. All right, so so what, what was the media, uh, how, how were they picking that story up? So so for the listeners who, who are not aware of it, I mean, this was on Five Pillars. Muslim population of England passes three million for the first time. A lot of the times, you know, people ask, or you probably have discussed you know there's two million of us in the uk and then you know the figure was there's two and a half million of us in the uk now it's three million wow mm. i've got some bad news for people who are uh, because the, the the general population of the the broader i guess the people is on the decline mm. right and the only uh, well one of the one of the uh, i guess uh, the communities which is still uh, still focusing on the family uh, and still the family is pretty much intact is the Muslim community mm, and if you have a, a family which is intact mm. right then then you're likely to have family and offsprings etc mm. and and that they're likely to increase and the others are likely to decrease okay. so therefore I mean there's know, three I think there's three reasons for the increase in the population yeah. one is yeah Muslims are having more babies yeah. uh, it's something like three per family whereas uh, non-Muslims is like one per family something like that so wow. there's that reason mm. also conversion is not a massive factor but the, the conversion is a factor as well but also immigration as well mm. obviously we have an aging population in this country mm. so we need young people to come and you know pay the taxes and do the jobs and and a lot of them are muslims and guess who's going to be yeah. doing that exactly so muslim. yeah whereas the non-muslim community is is a, an aging community whereas the muslim community is still quite a young community mm. so uh, but at the same time uh, you know tommy robinson don't be scared we're still a we're still a small minority in this country you know we're still a we're still a weak community yeah. we in terms of numbers and otherwise we don't have the power and ultimately it'll be but bad news is you right know, <laughs> you, you've only got a few a few uh, a limited period left before yeah. well we it'll, be, it'll be a hundred years before get, get uh, yeah. power structures and yeah. stuff so. yeah. alright <laughs> right, that was a good 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 story but I mean, I, then of course of course that also brings its challenges for the Muslim community itself opportunities yeah. and, and challenges right I mean, yeah I don't think we should focus just on numbers mm, you know it's mm. not all about numbers and mm. oh there's three million of us mm. but does that mean there's three million practicing Muslims mm. three million that, Muslims exactly, are going to bring yeah. Baraka to their families mm. and the community around them mm. I'm not so sure yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I think that's the that, so. that, that's the more pertinent point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mashallah. Yeah. I mean, we've never had a we've never had a, a problem with the numbers. It's actually then producing the quality. Quality, right. quality, uh, as, a, as opposed to the numbers, and I think that's what the, the focus needs to be, right? And then actually, also, you know, taking advantage of that, you know, opportunity because this is a blessing in all of the Muslim lands. You know, when they look at the statistics and they look at the 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 you know the the populations in in the Gulf, in you know in Africa, in any of the the Muslim countries. It is the fact that you know the majority of the population is is young, mm. right? And, and with the youth is the opportunity, right? But th then again, I think uh, you have to sort of bring in uh, other factors into how how society develops, 
I, and I think if you if you generally look the, uh, as the society becomes affluent, the focus on on you know children having bigger families, etc. Um, you know, the focus disappears. Yeah. They tend to have smaller families, right? Because mm-hmm. they want to more of a quality life rather than sort of making sure that they're secure and safe and secure. So generally, the population trend um, decreases as the prosperity of the other society increases. Um, you know, so right. I think that, that's is, that, is that some private research you've been doing, brothers? Of uh, it's a known fact, my friend. It's, <laughs> All it's, right, it's, it's a known we, we've got we've got two minutes. Very quickly, let, let's cover this last story. Luton families enjoy holiday funfair thanks to Be a Good Neighbor campaign, which is of course been run by Inspire FM uh, last week. Right. So yeah. unfortunately, I wasn't around. T- tell me what happened. Yeah. yeah we, so we, so basically, um, the uh, the funfair organization, I think it's called DNG. Mm-hmm. We worked with them during Inspire Eid. Mm. Uh, and they basically reached out to us and said, look, you know, we, we're in town during Christmas period. Uh, why don't you come down and, and uh, help? Uh, okay. uh, wh- why don't you do something here? Yeah. What we'll do is we'll give you 100 free tickets and we'll reduce it to a pound a ride. Yeah. Uh, why don't you do something in town? And we thought, you know, uh, you know, instead something of just calling out to people, yeah. why don't we make use of it? So we mm. thought, well, why don't we have some stalls up there and start giving out free food to people? Because right? they're mm. going to be in town shopping, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and then we galvanized the community. Lots of businesses donated lots of food. Yeah. Uh, there was a soup kitchen where we were giving out soup, basically. Yeah. And yeah. we were giving out sort of hot, hot cup, cups of tea to people. Wow. Um, so, in effect, it became more of a kind of like a community, community it's thing. A fair, uh, almost like fair. a fair, right? Community fair with free food. I mean, normally. It's and this free, was part of the Be a Good Neighbor campaign, right? So, I mean. Yeah, was, the, well, I think. I wasn't. Too, I'm too impressed by the the uh, <laughs> the, the title of it because I think it implies that we're not good neighbours as it is, uh, and we are. Uh, um, but uh, I think the message is clear that that we need to focus on focus on really is, uh, trying to create um, uh, you know an Islamic attitude right to to our neighbourhoods, which is that we're responsible for the. 40 sort of neighbours on our right and 40 to the left, and wow. mm. and to get that message across, uh, really. Um, that's the key thing as well. Okay, all right, gents. Uh, unfortunately, we're, we're fast running out of time. We're just about to see the, the red screen come up, which means it's the last uh, 60 seconds of the show. Uh, Brother Roshan, I want to reach out to you. Thank you very much for coming into the studio. It's been <laughs> fantastic having you here, inshallah. And uh, next time when you're around, it'll be great to see you uh, here once again. Just inshallah. reach out, inshallah, ta'ala, and uh, if, you, if you have some time. I know you're a very busy man. <laughs> uh, then it'll be good to, to get you in, in the studio. And also, uh, you know, likewise, Deputy uh, Editor, Mr. Uh, Dili Saab, it'll be good to, to to hear from him in turn sometimes soon. Inshallah. Jazakla for joining us. And Brother Zafar, as always, Jazakla for joining us in the studio. Listeners, we are coming towards the end of the show. Uh, interesting show, Inshallah. It will be up on our podcast link, uh, right? Friday night link, uh, very shortly after the show this evening, Inshallah. We'll be back next week with a, with a new show. Uh, if you want to input into some of the stories that we cover for next week, you know, feel free to reach out to us on 0777 Double two. You can send us your thoughts, suggestions, and uh, we're, we're more than happy to look into any particular story that you may feel that we want covering. Inshallah. Otherwise, you know, do contribute and and share and uh, share your thoughts and your and your and your sentiments and your feelings on some of these stories. No point, you know, holding those sentiments back and those feelings always, back, right? Yeah, you have to air that. them and discuss it with someone. Otherwise, you're going to become a very frustrated individual. Okay. Until next week. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We stream our daily broadcast on inspirefm.org. 
You'll find all our daily updates on our social media at InspireFM Luton.